Hello, everyone, and welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast, where we learn from today's global leaders in FinTech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. In this episode, I bring you a recording of my live panel discussion at the MIT FinTech Conference, a Sloan student-run event, where I sat down with an eclectic group of FinTech leaders, including Paolo Passoni, managing partner at SoftBank Latin America Fund, David Green, CEO of Ernest, Alex Kostecki, founder and COO at Claire, and Alejandro Correa, Chief Artificial Intelligence Officer at Rappi. All right, everyone. If you could take a seat, we'll, uh, we'll start kicking off the panel with a quick round of introductions from me, and then I will pass it over to Miguel to moderate, and you'll hear the, uh, the interesting folks, and I'll get out of your hair. But to start, this is going to be a panel on building better alternative lending products. Um, we have a couple guests who are here via Zoom, a couple in person, to start with the in-person ones. To my right is Alejandro Correa Bonson. He is the Chief Artificial Intelligence Officer at Rappi Bank, the financial services arm of the Latin American super app Rappi, which is responsible for providing working capital lending and credit and debit cards in the Latin American markets. He also is an adjunct professor at the Institute of Industrial Engineering in University of the Andes, where he teaches students about uh, applied data science and also deep learning. And he has a PhD in machine learning and pattern recognition from University of Luxembourg. Next guest in person is David Green, our second panelist. He's the CEO of Ernest. Ernest is a fintech company aiming to improve access to higher education by providing better student loans that are based on a student's entire credit profile rather than just their credit score. Prior, David worked at his own fintech startup, Poplar Finance, which was aiming to reduce the need for security deposits for renters. And he also worked as VP of operations for American Mortgage Consultants. So those are the two in-person panelists. We also have joining us remotely, Alex Kostecki. He's the founder, CEO, and president of Claire. You see him on the screen over there. Um, Claire is a social impact fintech. That's goal is to provide workers with access to earned wages before payday. It also provides sort of additional financial services like savings and spending accounts for those workers. And before assignment, Claire, Alex worked at Deloitte Consulting, where he did strategy and M&A and marketing work. And then our final panelist, also joining us via Zoom remotely, is Paolo Pasoni. Paolo is a managing partner at SoftBank's $5 billion Latin American Fund. Paolo serves as a board member on a number of companies, including Quito Andar, Creditas, Usar, Olis, and many more. He also has experience in emerging market investments as a managing director at Third Point. And then finally, I'll introduce Miguel Armaza, our moderator. Miguel is the founder and general partner at Gilgamesh Ventures, which is a early stage VC focused on fintech companies in the Americas. He's also the host of a awesome podcast called Fintech Leaders and an accompanying, an accompanying newsletter, which provides exclusive interviews with a really diverse set of global fintech leaders. 
So without further ado, I'll let the panel get started with Miguel. Thank you very much. All right. Well, far too kind. Thanks for those intros. And thanks to, obviously, to MIT for hosting all of us. Um, we have a lot to talk about, so I think we can dive right into it. And the first question that maybe we could start discussing is about, in general, the promise of fintech, and particularly as it relates to providing credit to the underbanked, right? Because a lot of fintech companies have started with that mission. And sorry to put you on the spot, David, but I, I wanted to start with you because Ernest originally started with a different customer segment. And then you evolve into student loans, right? So maybe tell us about that, that pivot and, and why you decided it was, it, was, it was better to focus on your current customers. Yeah, good question. Uh, I'd love to say that it was uh, super strategic uh, and well planned out. Um, I think at the time um, we had been, you know, trying to work on this challenge of democratizing access to, to high quality financial services, starting with personal loans and lending. You know, through that journey, we launched our private student loan, uh, our student loan refinancing product. And as a small startup at the time, basically we found one product that had product market fit and leaned into that. And the personal loan kind of left by the wayside as we scaled that product. So, you know, I think, I think getting back to your original question of uh, the promise of democratizing access, Certainly, we're not there yet. I think we've made a lot of improvements. I think that the the overall ecosystem is a lot more complicated than than you might think, and certainly than you think when you are are looking to to start your own company. Democratizing access, you're like, oh, I could I can underwrite better. I can use different measures to assess creditworthiness. Ultimately, what you decide to do on the front end and and with consumers, I think, is just one small part of the puzzle. You then need to fund those loans, however you want, choose to fund those. Those investors all view credit very traditionally still. Um, and so there's a lot to do there uh, to, to continue expanding the access. And while there's, as I said, on the consumer side, there's, there's a lot you can do and a lot people are doing. Um, there's still a lot to, to be changed on the back end as, yeah. as far as financing. And, and something I like about this panel is that we have folks covering the entire Americas where the realities are very different. I mean, maybe Alejandro, you can tell us about, you know, how fintechs through credit are actually helping bank the, the really underbanked in, in Latin America and how Rappi is moving in, in this direction. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's still a promise, I will say. Um, there are a lot of new fintechs uh, and, and even some older banks trying to get into this huge market because the reality is that you will see, depending on the country, more than 50% of underbanked. And in most cases, that translates into 50% or more that doesn't have a great history. And, and that's the reality of why they are underbanked in, in most scenarios. So there are a lot of promises of using a different kind of alternative data towards being able to supplement or, or replace the need for, uh, for credit bureaus for these uh, populations. Um, the reality so far is that there haven't been like a single bulletproof alternative data source that allow you to completely replace uh, the credit bureaus. Um, and, and trust me, I, I have spent most of my time like just even doing the actual algorithms, trying to figure out that the way to do that, and, and we are not there yet. 
So there is still that need for more data. There is still that need for more risk appetite towards uh, assuming that additional risk towards being able to collect more data. Uh, a few companies are doing that, I'll say that, successfully. That will grow up a lot in the next couple of years. And we will see very quickly a lot of learnings from those that are going to fail, definitely. And, but if we can learn from that and understand even better how to deal with that huge problem, because again, it's a huge opportunity. Alex, curious to get your, your take, because you're working with a lot of gig workers uh, in the US. Yeah, the, the problem is definitely a different one to what you see in LATAM. I think, um, you know, credit products in the US are, I'd say, more or less ubiquitous. I mean, you can access um, liquidity if you need it. The problem is obviously, uh, is it a fair set of products or not? So people like to cite payday lenders because they're a good enemy to have. But, you know, you've got credit cards that charge you insanely high APRs or just fees upon each transaction. And this is a lot of what we're trying to displace um, in the US specifically. So when we started Claire, we were looking at, first, there's actually an interesting paper for those of you who uh, know Professor Todd Baker at HKS, which talks about the power of the salary link. And um, the whole idea being that when you're close to somebody's paycheck, you're able to see just default rates, which are much lower. And that allows, that allows you to be serving workers for way, way, way lower cost and not start you know, having super high APRs. And um, what Claire tried to do is basically sort of bank on this idea, which really worked well for salary finance and for pay active, but then also get access to time and attendance data and really sort of bring both of those together. It's a really good solution for the workers that have access to our product. So we are able to underwrite people and give them free liquidity for that. And we're seeing, you know, we've just started creating tiers now and we're seeing like as soon as you give access to people to this the, the higher tiers, if they're trusted, they just like use it like crazy and, and people are really, really happy with the product. The obvious difference with a lot of the challenges that other panelists here are trying to solve is that we operate basically by distributing B2B to C, right? So we go to see a, a, a payroll provider and then there's an employer and we distribute them. So we're in a, an ecosystem which kind of keeps us safe. I think like that's allowed us to 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 be having that margin of... of um, of additional value to our users. But uh, I do agree that when you talk about direct-to-consumer, the credit bureaus are still kind of where everybody stands and it's hard to find this additional source of data. Paolo, I guess you have the bird's eye view here because you, you sit on boards and you're seeing companies with many different credit <laughs> models targeting the, the banked, the underbanked, and, and the completely unbanked. Are there any key differences that you're absorb, uh, observing amongst your, your portfolio companies? Yeah, absolutely. So first, thanks for the invitation. Sorry I'm not there in person. I had COVID last week and New York State doesn't let me travel outside the state for 10 days. So whatever. <laughs> Here am I virtually, but I wish I was there in person with you. Uh, second, uh, the framework I have, very, very simple framework for uh, lending fintechs is there are three basic anchors. One is how do you originate your loans? How do you price the risk? And how do you fund the, the loans? And the interesting thing I see evolving is you never want to just originate loans on Google and Facebook. The CAC will go through the roof and you're going to have a problem. So the monetization of 
financing is occurring by the owner of the customer that owns the customer organically. And usually it's marketplaces. So if you think of Kavak, who buys and sells used cars, they're financing those cars, but they already have the customer. If you think about Quinto and Dar, they already have the customer on the real estate side. If you think about Klarna, when they work with brands, they, the customers are going directly to those brands and, or to the, you know, through the app of Klarna to the marketplace, and they are not having to originate those customers, and then they can lend to them at a rational CAC, because the problem is CAC. Uh, second, on this issue that was touched on, on pricing risk, the interesting thing is New Bank has completely changed how we think about what's doable and not doable. I agree that in Latin America, a lot of uh, credit history doesn't exist, but there were businesses before that created their own track record of their customers. There is a company, a retailer in Brazil, for example, called Casas Bahia, that poor people would never have credit in any bank, but they would make sure they had a credit history with Casas Bahia. Because every other year, they want to buy a new uh, refrigerator or stove, they at least had a credit history of them. And if you think about it, that's exactly what Nubank has done with a super low limit credit card of $25, $30. They're letting people build their credit history of them and over time, Nubank is able to, with the data, increase those limits, right? And of course, you don't want to really borrow. In the beginning, it's just a working capital kind of card, and, and it's a way for you to become part of the digital economy. So that, in Nubank's case, also solves another problem because then people want to deposit money to keep paying their bills in that low limit, and they have a lot of deposits, which they can use to fund uh, the lending side. The, on the unsecured lending, the biggest issue is always proving to capital markets that you have not only a positive IAR kind of loan, but a stable default rate kind of loan. Because if default rates are jumping up and down 5%, 10%, it's not something that capital markets love, and they will require a tremendous amount of junior trenches and equity capital deployed against that. And that's inefficient for a startup to tie up so much capital in the junior trenches. Once you can, however, develop a business with stable unit economics, especially stable defaults, then uh, investors will get more confident and you can have much lower uh, degrees of commitments to the junior trenches of the securitizations. And that's what you see, for example, in Creditas in Brazil. They basically... All their investment is to get the customers, but they get 100% of their capital back once they do the securitizations, because effectively they're not funding the home equity line or the auto loan, because the markets have learned to uh, like the product and not require that from creditors. So those are some of the uh, ways I think about it. Several of you have mentioned the, the topic of credit underwriting. And of course, we all know this is done through significant use of AI and machine learning. But there's also been instances where companies have come under criticism because some of these algorithms were actually built with inherent biases, right? And, and I think we have a, an expert here who can, Alejandro, you can tell us, you know, how do you think about that? How does, how does your team think about uh, flagging this before 
you know, it gets too big and before the bias is too embedded in your credit model. It is a very complicated problem. The reality is that we are biased, therefore our data is biased. And mostly the issue has to, is, is because of the realities of applying machine learning in lending. So when you are applying machine learning in, I don't know, a recommendation engine or predicting the weather, you get almost uh, instant feedback. When you are applying machine learning in lending or in, in credit cards, for example, you will get your feedback in a year. So whatever you want to do to fix bias, to collect more data, to have randomized experiments, you will have to wait a year to be able to incorporate those learn into your new algorithm and improve your credit policy. You can do more sophisticated things, but at the end, you need to wait. So, so how, do you, how can you deal with that? There is a bunch of recent research. Uh, it, it is a, kill, uh, a field called uh, contrafactor learning. But the issue is that you still have to, to say manually, what do you want to account for? So you want to make sure that, you are, that your algorithm is not biased towards gender, towards, I don't know, addresses and, and, and different locations, but you have to do that manually. Up to what point you stop? That's where the research, it is right now, it is a huge issue, and still you have to wait. So long story short, uh, you have to know that you have those biases, you have to understand and manually put cases into your decision engine that you manually create to, make, to understand if those biases are happening, the more complex the AI, the harder it is to, to do that. But just having that mindset, that's just knowing what happened in general to these two populations in terms of the score that I'm calculating, and keep doing that, allow you to um, have less predictive models, that's the issue, but more fair. And uh, regulation is, is cutting up, and there is a lot of new things coming up to force us to do these kind of experiments more often and to, and to make sure that you are creating more fair algorithms. And with time, that will reflect in more fair and unbiased data. But going back to my first comment, it will take time. Here's if someone else wants to chime in on this point. Yeah, I think I would add um, a couple of things. So one is on the on the bias piece, you know, so, so we spend a lot of time doing a lot of back testing, a lot of fair lending testing um, to make sure our models are not biased. But there's also this question of like all the models you're, you're building are ultimately, you know, based on some amount of data. The data is also biased. And so even FICO like has its biases and it's it's a little bit of a, str a strange exercise where you go through this, uh, you know, fair lending testing. And you're like, oh, well, there, here's like three uh, sets of things that are flagging as bias. And then you're like, oh, but, but they can be explained with FICO. And so, you know, people are like, oh, that's fine. So we've all like collectively decided that if it's like based on the credit score, in some, in some ways it's like, okay. If it's based on something new that not everybody has agreed is like the way we're going to measure credit worthiness, then it's a lot more complicated. And so, you know, I think that's where we still have a lot of work to do because you can come up with, you know, uh, we're talking about alternative lending, you can come up with new variables that are, that are probably less biased than FICO is. But since it's not like widely accepted by regulators, since it's more complicated, you actually have a lot more trouble uh, going with something like that. And so that's, I think, another reason why everybody ultimately just like 
It's like it's too much trouble. Uh, it's more trouble than it's worth trying to prove out that this other thing is going to give me slightly better results, is slightly less biased, is moving us in the right direction because you're fighting this huge uphill battle. So I think there's a lot to do there. And then I think the last point I would make is it's also really hard to train models when nobody's, we haven't been through it, at least in the US, like we haven't been through a credit cycle kind of ever since any of these, uh, any of this FinTech was started. And so I think that's uh, going back to the funding piece as well is where, how do you fund the loans? Like no matter how good you think you are, you don't, you're not gonna get credit for that a lot. Um, and it's harder to train models because everybody's just like, well, yeah, you're doing well, but what does this look like when you go through a cycle? Um, and it's hard to, it's hard to prove that out uh, without <laughs> having that experience. So I think like in some ways, when that happens, that will unlock, you know, kind of a lot of value for, for folks to be able to prove their models, to know, to retrain the models, et cetera, and get better. Maybe I can add something very brief. Um, something that a recurrent com conversation with regulators in terms of the algorithms and the complexity of new data is way easier when you are argumenting financial inclusion. So, so when you are saying this new data for our for current bank population, that's a no most of the time. But when you are arguing, let me test this because I will use it to, to be able to score people that are that currently we cannot do it with traditional data. That's a way easier conversation with regulators. Um, the issue though, in my case, is that we have to deal with very different regulators in, in each country. So, so in some cases, works better. In, it isn't even a matter of which country, it's a matter of who is going to be in front of you. But, but the good part is that when you go through that argument, the conversation is easier. Yeah, I'll just add one obvious thing. You can have a very unbiased credit model, but if the securitization markets want a typical rating that they can compare to other things, and that has bias, you can, that's a theoretical exercise. <laughs> because if you can't fund your loans, they don't really exist. So we're not at the age yet where the securitizations have an ESG certification for unbiased risk models. Only when we get to that point, I think you can get practically models that don't have bias. Yeah, and I guess um, one topic that is important, and, and a lot of you have already mentioned it, is credit scoring. And for example, in the US, we see a very centralized approach that, of course, is being challenged. In Latin America, you know, centralized databases are, are not as rich, right? I'm curious if anyone has thoughts as to where is this going? Credit scoring, are, are we moving, are we continuing to move in a more centralized direction? Um, is it country by country? I'm just curious to, to hear from, frankly, anyone in the panel, if, if you, know, you have any thoughts about the, the future of, of credit databases and credit scoring. For you to have moat, you need proprietary data. So that's why I think the, mind, the best thing that comes to my mind is what Nubank is doing. That behavior that they acquire from millions of people with almost no limit is proprietary data. So that's the whole point. Because if that data was available to everyone, the country would win, but the business would lose. <laughs> 
So it's a, it's a little bit of a challenge. And, and for the longest time, regulators should have cracked this down and forced open data access to this. But it hasn't happened because devil's in the details of implementing that. I think Europe has gone through a similar uh, phase of trying to do it, but in failing in the details of implementing these solutions for access to the data. So, and, and there is a contradiction between businesses that want to have protected data so they have moat versus what's best for society. Yeah, I think uh, this probably completely applies to what we're trying to experiment with here. Like Claire, you know, we're right now offering upper limits of call it $5,000 to people who wouldn't even have access to a credit card and we're not seeing default rates because we have access to this proprietary data. And so I think, you know, when, when we're trying to find a general direction of where everything is going to, it's, it's difficult right now because I think there's a lot of levels of experimentation. You know, you look at what Pedal is doing, which is completely built around the credit scoring system. It's, it's a really nice business. Um, and I think that they've, they've, got, they've started proving something out. We try to stay away as far away as possible from the credit scoring system. Uh, we could take it into account, but essentially what we do is we just put all of our eggs into this basket of payroll as the main piece, right? Like if you know where somebody worked and how long they've had their job for and that they clocked out five minutes ago, you should be able to advance. And I'm starting to see all these different pockets in, in the fintech space of um, essentially people betting on this, this nesting of data. I don't think that um, we're going to see sort of one ubiquitous direction quite yet. I think it might take quite a, quite a while, but that's the direction. Let me just add one thing. If you read all about vertical software and where, the, where vertical software is going, it's going to monetizing via lending. And why are they doing that? Because they have proprietary data from the software. <laughs> so I think everything points to the direction of you've got to have a data advantage to be able to price things better. A lot of this is, I guess, the promise of, of open banking right? that could drive some of this transparency. Switching gears a little bit, one of the questions that has been requested ahead of time by, I guess, students and the audience is to talk a little bit about uh, buy now, pay later. And I don't think anyone here is directly doing it, so maybe we can be a little bit more open. Although I'm sure, Paolo, you have portfolio companies that are looking at it. The question is, you know, is it actually good for the consumer, right? Or, or is, is BNPL doing a good job? <laughs> I don't think anyone wants to start, but like, Paolo. So I, I, I'll tell you what I think. So, like, breaking a purchasing bi weekly, two month installments is meaningless, right? Like, it's just trying to tease people to purchase something. And I don't think that creates a lot of value to society, even though it increases the conversion in the checkout. So, that's what people care. <laughs> the, the, the retailers care about that, but it's not creating lots of value to society. It creates value when you provide a much longer payment plan, in my view. Uh, and that is a more typical unsecured lending operation. And that operation looks very different from the risk side in developed markets like the US and Europe vis-a-vis -vis emerging markets. Very, very different. The connection to the retailers, the app is the same, but the risk and pricing is completely different. And I think that you can do it in emerging markets and you can unlock a lot of value, but you're going to have to learn to do unsecured lending well 
And that will take time because what I've noticed over time is you only learn when you lose money <laughs> and then you, you adjust your models and it takes, as, as people said in the panel before, it takes cycles, you got to test, you got to survive the cycles and then you can have the credibility to keep growing it. Uh, yeah, I, can. I think what we're seeing uh, just on, so we have maybe a bit of a delay, I don't mean to interrupt the, the other panelists. <laughs> um, what we're seeing on uh, on the side of Claire is actually pretty interesting because we deal with a lot of people who are sub 650 credit score and have a hard time accessing credit in the first place. They typically are looking at their bank balance like two to three times a day, right? They're really, really aware of where they stand. And every time a new expense comes in, they need to start taking that account into their cycle until they get to the end of, of their, their pay cycle, receive their paycheck, and it all kind of starts again. And so we've really sort of focused on this idea of safety net because what we've noticed is our user base is actually quite scared of BNPL because it actually complicates their budgeting, right? They need to start. So, so if they're sort of very aware of which purchase they made on it, um, that's fine. But if you have to kind of take into account, okay, I do have another quarter of my, you know, pair of shoes for my kids coming in next week. It makes things more complicated. And so I think it's, it's very, very specific to this sort of more affluent group. Um, you know, the Peloton buyers essentially, um, going to be harder for, for lower income. I, I just like, I have a, maybe a personal stance on this. I think it depends, you know, what, how you look at, like what, how you define good. Uh, I think it definitely encourages spending and depending on what that is, that, that can be looked at as good or bad. Like, you know, when, when, when I'm on Amazon and it's like you can get BNPL for like really fancy jeans, you know, I don't know that encouraging people to do that is improving their, their quality of life, but maybe it is. Uh, you know, for us, we're, we're focused on, on student loans and student loan refinancing and paying that off. And we, we, you can refinance your student loans to uh, pay it off as fast as possible for the lowest cost. You can also, you know, take a longer term and pay it off slowly and use your money for other things. We kind of take a stance that we're trying to help people with the former. We allow you to do both, but like we we want to help you get out of debt. And so when we, you know, take a look at things like this, I think it's encouraging people to take on more debt, which in some instances is probably good. In many instances is is bad. And and then I think on the flip side, they don't always report. People aren't building credit through it. Right. Other lenders are going to have problems lending to those folks because they don't know all the outstanding liabilities. So there's a lot of uh, other uh, complications as well. We're getting some audience questions. Uh, and one is talking about blockchain technology, uh, specifically as it relates to emerging markets. And you have a, a point of view as to how blockchain technology is going to empower, I guess, the, the industry, specifically what we're talking about, credit. In, in emerging markets? Um, either, I guess, either Alejandro or Paolo, you can chime in. <laughs> I don't, don't really see on the short term how... The reality is that um, in, the, in the emerging markets that we are, they are highly regulated. So trying to, to come up with the usage of, of blockchain towards lending, we'll still have to go and get the proper, the proper regulation or at least explain right why you have to do it that way and not another way. I personally don't want to be the one having that conversation, but hopefully someone brighter than me do it and do it right. So far, I don't really see it. I'm looking forward to what Paolo has to say. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you that there's a company in Brazil called Cloudwalk, and they're using blockchain wallets and blockchain features to securitize the receivables from credit cards for merchants. And they're doing that at better cost than you would do in the traditional markets. I think they're pushing the envelope on the regulation side, but I love to see that. That's how you create new things. You push the envelope and you see what happens. <laughs> um, the other thing I would say is it will take time. However, in countries like Venezuela or Ecuador or Argentina, where people are adopting crypto wallets, you start all of a sudden having more data on their behavior. And if you got data on their behavior, you eventually can create products that were not, you know, feasible because you didn't have the data. So I think it's, uh, that's how I'm thinking. Eventually, the lending side will impact consumers in emerging markets by creating more data for people to analyze so they can serve them. It will take time, though. There's um, another question that has come in, and it's talking about payment ecosystems and lessons that we can learn. The question is talking about India, but I think we can also include Brazil, because uh, Brazil, through PIX, for example, has, has really been extremely successful at starting to improve real-time payments and the payments ecosystem, uh, I guess, for the Latam folks in the, in the panel. What can we learn from these successful launches? Uh, I'll go. Uh, so the central, the, first of all, the president of the Central Bank of Brazil, he may have screwed up on monetary policy, but he was a genius on how he did picks. I think Mexico tried to do something similar and completely failed. And the way I think the thing that made it successful is that he had the whole authentication done by the traditional digital wallets of incumbent banks and digital banks. And then you would, you know, unlock fixed payments. So you had a certain features were incorporated on the banking ecosystem. You went through those and then you use PIX. Okay. And, and I think that made it more secure. Uh, that made it almost mandatory in all the apps you have. And it caught fire from there on. It's eventually going to replace debit cards. Right. So that's interesting what's happening in Brazil. With Pix it was a huge success. It's one of those examples where central, the central bank is a true innovator, right? But it helps to have also one regulator, like uh, the U.S. I, I guess you know some closing thoughts. Uh, what for for everyone in the panel? What makes you more excited about the industry uh, and your company in the next you know couple of years? And maybe we can start with David. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's there's a long way to go to 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 really get to democratization. But as Paolo said, you gotta you gotta keep pushing the limit. And, and there's tons of companies, uh, new ones every day that are that are starting with new business models and you know willing to to tackle those regulations in different ways. And so you know, I think we have. I'll go back to my first comment. We have seen the shift on the consumer side, on the front end side, um, and eventually that will make it to to the funding side as well. Uh, as long as people kind of keep taking those shots. And so uh, encouraged that that's continuing to happen and, and continue to happen at a super rapid pace. Maybe Alex? Um, same kind of energy there. I think, you know, fintech or financial services have been so stagnant, right? Same companies offering the same services in the same way to the same people over and over again. And 
as all these services started exploding, you know, suddenly um, customer acquisition was separate from actually serving a banking service, for example. Um, we weren't sure if consumers would be scared of trying out new products and experimenting. And they're not. Uh, people are, are trying all kinds of stuff. People are opening a, you know, a bank account week and trying out a new debit card. And I think that leaves a lot of room for sort of the, the best players to win, which is not what it was like um, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Definitely. To, to take another angle, from my point of view, the whole experimentation in terms of new ways to, to actually understand the consumer. That, that for me is extremely, extremely interesting um, because there are way too many things to do. And there are a lot of th that you cannot do it yourself. And so there are a lot of companies trying very, very different things um, in terms of how to be get a better understanding of the user risk, income, fraud, and so on. Um, hopefully, we are able to share that knowledge. That, that's the, the part that scares me, that a lot of good knowledge are, going, are just going to be in, inside the small teams, and suddenly that company is going to fail, and we are not going to get aware of that. So hopefully we don't. We learn more to be able to don't make the same mistakes, but a lot, a lot of things are happening in that in that space, and particularly in developing countries with, let's say, up to a point less regulation in terms of what kind of data models you can use. So that's very, very exciting. Finally, Paulo, you can take us home. I don't have much to add on that question. So <laughs> if you want to ask another question, I'll take you home. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well. Thank you, everyone. Uh, outstanding panel, and I hope the audience enjoyed it. Uh, I'm sure they did. And thanks to MIT as well. Yep, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode from the MIT FinTech Conference. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and truly means a lot. As always, I want to extend a very special thank you to the great editor, Rafael Ostria, for his amazing work behind the scenes. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. <laughs>